gentlemen and ladies, brothers and sisters, people, whoever you are and wherever you are, welcome to the Truth Prescription Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sekou Gavis, and each week I interview successful people from around the world and discuss how accepting the truth can propel your career and help you live a life of gusto and purpose. No mantras, no gimmicks, just the truth. So close your eyes and open your ears, and let's get into this. Come on. All right, Uncle Jim, let's jump into some questions. Cool. Uh, You've been in this industry for 50 years, and you've seen a lot of change. What's your message to current sportscasters on TV and radio? Study your craft. Read. Read about the history of what you're covering. Mm. You must know your history. If you don't know your history, you're going to fail at critical moments to know anything that's truly significant about what you're watching, what you're listening to, or what you're trying to convey to an audience. And that not only goes for sportscasters, that goes for newscasters as well. I've done news. Yeah. I've done talk. I've done serious talk. Yeah. I've always wanted to be the most well-read person or at least one of the most well-read people walking into any room. Yeah. And I've been blessed to interview some of the top people in the world but they knew I was briefed walking in that door. They would say, boy, I better be on my P's and Q's because... And not because I'm going to ask them any embarrassing questions. That's not what you try to do. If these people have put themselves in embarrassing situations, your job is to still get the story out of them without being flip, arrogant, uh, off the wall, um, just just being a little fresh punk reporter. Your job is to be a journalist. And sometimes you well, all the time for me, I always try to look at that person and realize this person's in trouble. It's a very difficult time for them. Now, I can choose to be sensitive or I can choose to be a jerk and just come (laughs) at them and think I want to attack them. And if it's somebody I don't like, it becomes even harder. But I always feel that your Christian values have to raise to the center. Then you have to tell yourself there by the grace of God. Go go I. Do you you feel like based on your observation or your listening of the. Uh, talent that's on air now that they're not reading, they're not educating themselves. No, they're uh, not. You're, you're not impressed. I don't have to. I don't have to think it. I know it because I look in their <laughs> eyes. I look in their eyes. I yeah. hear when they speak, particularly when they're on camera. They're more concerned about how they look than what they're saying. They, their eye contact is not strong enough to me. We, we used to call the camera the the, the barrel of the cannon. You got to look right down the barrel of the cannon and you got to let the world know, I know what I'm doing. There is no question in my mind. <laughs> right. There's no blinking of my eyes. I know exactly what I'm saying. Yes. I have researched it. I am forthright with it. And I'm going to bring it straight to you right between your eyes. Now you have one or two um, options. You can either accept it or not accept it. But if it's the truth, it's going to remain the truth long after I am gone from this venue, it's still going to be the truth. So that's, I, I think more than anything that, that that's the, that's the reason why it's very difficult for me. And even my colleagues, even many of my colleagues that I've worked with, uh, or, or, or been, I don't really believe, I, don't, I just don't believe in this word I'm competing against because so many of my colleagues, particularly the ones that are white, they already have the advantage. 
management is going to pick them because they are of the same color. They're going to get every advantage. And and for many of my black colleagues, I feel so bad for them because they're willing to accept secondary roles. They're willing to accept less pay than their white counterparts for doing the same job because they want to be liked. This whole thing about being liked, uh, your Q rating, whether people truly like you or I just want to know one thing. Are they listening and do they respect what I have to say? I'm going to speak the truth to them as best I know it. If I am wrong, I am more, more than willing to hear what you have to say. And if you can prove to me that I'm wrong, I'll be the first one, the first one to stand up and say, I made a mistake. I am not a perfect being. Maybe I misjudged this one. But in all these years, I've rarely made one. Try to imagine. No, I'm serious. And that's not bragging. That's fact. Try to imagine 50 years. You've never blown a major story. And you've been on top of news and sports stories with people running in all different directions. And you just take your time and say, let me think this out now. Let me try to weigh all of the components of this story. Let me try to get seven different angles. They teach you in broadcast school, seven different ways to come at this. Let's Mm. view all of them. This is what I teach some of my, some of the young people that I've I've taught and that work for me and so forth. I say, just be one, be accurate Two, make sure what you're saying is right. As far as you can check it. And three, and go out there and deliver it with every ounce of force that you have within your being, that you look right down the barrel and say, I'm the man (laughs) and I'm the one who's supposed to be (laughs) doing this. I'm the one who's going to educate you on what this situation is about. Now, it becomes very difficult when you work in a town like Boston Mm -hmm. or even New York. When you refuse to be a homer, you just I'm going to call the game. I have never, ever wanted to actually root for anybody. A couple of individual players I may have rooted for. But normally, no. I just want to call the game. Yeah. The game The game is exciting. Because, I mean, even today, you know, Russell Westbrook, Kevin Durant, uh, Kyrie Irving, LeBron James, all of these guys followed guys that were greater than them. And that's what nobody wants to face. Yeah. Everything today is instant. I said, do you know anything about the history of the game? And I love going to high schools and I speak all over the place sometimes. I say, do you know who Julius Irving was? Okay. Do you know who Bill Russell was? Do you know who Sam, who's the greatest clutch shooter of all time? Oh, Stephen Curry. No, no, Stephen no, Curry no. won two <laughs> no, right. NBA championships. Right. Sam Jones has won 10. <laughs> that's a ring for every finger on your hand. Both hands. <laughs> Russell's got 11. He's got one for the toe. Right, so right, right, right. when you want to talk to me about Michael Jordan, six. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, six. Magic Johnson, five. I know all of their history from the 1960s until now. Who's a better player? Chamberlain or Russell? One-on-one game, Will Chamberlain's going to kill Bill Russell. Team game, Bill Russell had better teammates around him. That's why they won so many titles. Yeah. But the one year that Will Chamberlain had a team in 1966 and 67, they beat the Celtics four games to one, snapped the Celtics eight championship winning streak, and went on to win the NBA title. Yeah. Yeah. And the very next year, Russell and them came back and beat them. And they beat him because Bill because Billy Cunningham fract, fractured his wrist. That was basically the reason why they were able to get by the 76 in a seven-game series. Mm-hmm. And then Russell won two more. Yeah. Now think about this. Yeah. You're talking about one man 
in modern day sports who played in who played for 13 years and played in 12 NBA finals. Yes. 12. That's crazy. And yeah. won 11. Yeah. And the greater yeah. story is what about the one he lost? Well, he was carried off the floor in St. Louis after fracturing his ankle. And he had had something like 20 rebounds up to that point in game six. As he's being wheeled off the floor, Sam Jones and Casey Jones are walking by him. I just film of this. And he says, just get me to game seven. I'll find a way to play on this leg. They lost by one point to the St. Louis Hawks. Bob Pettit had to score. Hall of Famer had to score 50 points for them to win by one <laughs> point. Russell came back the next year and said, we're not going to be losing anytime soon. And they won eight in a row. Yeah. Well, sp- speaking of the NBA, this is a great segue to something current that's going on now. Uh, I don't know if you heard recently, there was a Fox uh, News commentator who told LeBron James that he needs to just shut up and dribble. I believe that's Laura Ingram or whatever her name yeah. is. Shut yeah. up and dribble. Yeah, I know. What, what's, your, what's your thought process She's She's ignorant. So what do you expect? But but she's been a talk show host for a long. She's what she's she's in the in the conservative talk show field. I worked on the same station with her. Never talked to her directly. No, I came on. I came on. Um, she came on at seven from four to seven. No, no, Jay Seven came on from four to seven. She came on from seven to ten, and I did weekends at the same station. Laura Ingram is is one of these young white women who who is so happy to have a microphone and truly thinks she knows what she's talking about. She's never lived anything significant to me. Yeah. She's never, I guarantee you, I'm, I'm pretty sure she's probably never talked to maybe 25 black people at a time in her life. And if she has, more power to you, Laura. But, Laura, <laughs> you really need to get some, some concept of what you're talking about. The reason being is black athletes have been speaking out since before Muhammad Ali. Yeah, Jackie Robinson was the one. He was the giant. He, 1947, he broke the color line. He had to keep his mouth closed. But when he started speaking, Jackie started talking about everything from what was on the field up to the press box into the owner's box. And Jackie opened the door for guys like Muhammad Ali to be able to speak. Now, there was conflict because they felt Jackie was Uncle Tom at one time, but that all got straightened out, too. But it got straightened out within us. Then you're talking about Jim Brown, Wilt Chamberlain. You're talking about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. You're talking about these are giants. These aren't pipsqueaks. These are giants. (laughs) And they spoke to America when America was totally not ready for this. I'm talking about the early 60s, Seiko. This is before the civil rights movement kicked off. I mean, they walked with Malcolm. They walked with Martin. They walked with Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. And then they formed what they felt was a platform for black athletes to speak. Yeah. Laura Ingram, do you realize that LeBron James has already spent over $41 million sending black children to college and Mm. white children to college? Mm. What have you done? Mm. I'd like to see your bank account. Mm. I like to see it for all the money that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar spent in his life to send young people to college. Don't you ever tell. And how dare you as a white person tell a black person to shut up? I was told that one time, believe it or not, by management, by 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 the program director at WTKK Radio in the middle of a conversation, said, Jimmy, shut up. To which I got up to which I got up and I said, let me tell you something. This meeting is over. (laughs) And if you ever speak to me like that again, right. they're going to be carrying you out of here. And I walked out the office. My agent was sitting right there. 
Yeah. She's, so she runs to management. So Jimmy threatened me. So they call me in. Mm-hmm. So I didn't threaten her. I didn't have to threaten her. I said, but I'm going to tell you, and this is uh, Jim Baker was the general manager. I'm going to tell you, Mr. Baker, if you ever tell me to shut up, I'm going to kick your ass. There's a big difference. She's only lucky because she was a woman. That's the only reason she escaped this. That's the only <laughs> she reason escaped. why she escaped this wrath. I'm serious. I said, yeah. but the way I spoke back to her, she was sitting there trembling in her seat. I said, who the hell do you think you're talking to? I'm a 60-year-old man. You're a 40-year-old who got thrown into a job. And you're going to sit here and try to tell me about talk radio? You've never been on the air. You don't know what I put up with in this place. You don't read those filthy emails that come to me, insulting for everything from my intelligence to my, to my heritage. And I'm going to sit here and listen to you. And I'm holding up my own on Sunday. So they had to buy me out of the show. They had to tell me, you're going to start paying for your time. I said, keep oh, the station. Got it. See you. Got it. See it. Because the only yeah. way you can get me off the air. Right. Because they had to pay me $100 an hour, 300 bucks a Sunday. And for those three hours, I lit it up. We broke more exclusive stories than any other host in that station. And here's the best one. When Val Patrick was voted in as governor of Massachusetts, second black governor since Reconstruction, the first one is L. Douglas Wilder. From Virginia. Happens to be two commonwealths. Massachusetts is a commonwealth. Virginia is a commonwealth. I contact L. Douglas Wilder. And the night of his inauguration, I had them both on the air. That's CBS beautiful. Beautiful. CBS to this day is still trying to get the both of them together. Couldn't do it. I had them both on for 20 minutes. Mm. And Douglas Wilder stayed for another 20 minutes. And then we both attended the inauguration of together. Deval Patrick the That's next nice. day. That's nice. No Deval Patrick. There's no $5 million that President Obama would get years later when he held his birthday party in Boston because they're both from Chicago. So there's a link. There's always there's so many links here. But for her to say that, who doesn't really have a clue as to what real life is about, but they're paying her a lot of money. So she thinks she's really good. Uh, Was it Uh, Ann Coulter? Laura Ingram. These are all just white women who who basically they they call themselves conservatives. They don't even really know what conservative thinking is to a degree. Conservative thinking is nothing more than old Southern racist thinking. That's all it is. Yeah, we're here. Those black people are down here and the gap will never be changed. We will never, ever deal with this. But you see all the flack it's caused, which it really shouldn't have. But LeBron, he handled it. Handled it well. Handled it well with a lot of class. Um, a lot of class. So you know, you've interviewed a, a lot of people in your career. Um, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Ruben Hurricane Carter, Larry Mandela, Bird, Jim Larry Brown, Nelson Mandela. Jordan, these Mandela. are people. I'm talking about yeah. these are giants. I'm talking yeah. about they, these are athletes. I'm talking yeah. about giants. giants. Yeah, I'm talking about people like um, I interviewed uh, Malcolm when I was very young. Yeah. I was interview- I interviewed Martin before he died. Yeah, uh, th- these are men that when I sat there and I listened to them, I'd say to myself, these are God gifted men. God has placed a gift inside of them. And, and so the, my question is, who was your best interview and why? I, I, I could not equate that. I just couldn't. There, there was no best interview. Every single one of them, I wanted to believe is a classic. The reason mm. being is that when I interviewed Ali, it was two or three different settings that I interviewed him in. Um, this is just the sports side. But Mandela was, was a life-changing interview without a camera 
just sitting and talking with this man face to face and knowing what he had been through. Um, some of the uh, some of the other interviews, uh, Roy Glauber, you know, you would you'd have no most people would have no idea who Roy Glauber is. Roy Glauber is a physics professor at Harvard University at 18 years old. He worked on the Manhattan Project. He was there at Trinity mm. when the first nuclear weapon mm. was detonated. 18. And he's still, t- last time I checked, he may have retired from Harvard since then, but I'm the only person to interview him in, in 50 years. He wrote books. He taught at Harvard. I went to his class, walked right up to him and said, I want to interview you. I want to know what it was like to be 18 years old and see something that was so incredible, so impactful that it would change the world for the rest of time. And he gave me, he said, well, I can give you 15 minutes. He wound up standing on for a half an hour. Mm. Reuben Hurricane okay. Carter, we were supposed to do a half an hour. The show was so good. We just kept rolling yeah. for the whole hour and a half. Wow. We split it into two interviews. And that's when, and of that, then we put sports channel America ran it. And that's when Denzel saw it. And next, yeah. all the rest became history. Yeah. I'm just thinking, uh, Biggie, uh, Tupac, and all these guys, when they were in Washington, I went down there when they were using the misogynistic lyrics and so I said, why would you feel that? That was your mama they were talking about. Bitch and hoe and all that. And they, they had no answers. So they wanted to just shut me down. We, just, we don't hear it. We don't hear it. I said, you don't have to listen. But somewhere along the line, this is going to hit you between the eyes and you're going to wake up and you're going to see. I walked away from Washington. Didn't have to do anymore. Yeah. But I'm saying TV people, radio people, movie stars, uh, Newman, uh, the giants in the industry. Got to, I mean, Sophia Loren. You get a chance to interview people like this. You're blessed. Yeah. You are blessed. So yeah. you don't go in there acting stupid. You go in there prepared. Yeah. Tell me about your life. Tell me about from a child what motivated you to, to, to say, I want to be an actor. Yeah. People still ask me, why were you driven to this? Because I had a TV when I was seven years old. And I saw these people inside this box. <laughs> and I said, I want to be inside that box. Yeah. My father told me, son, listen, there are no black people on TV. There weren't. This is yeah. even before Amos and Andy. Wow. I said, well, I'm going to be the first. They came before me. But I watched their act and said, I don't want to be like them. I don't think what they say is funny. You know, acting like shuffling black people. That's not me. I said, I want to be more like Malcolm. With a touch of Martin in there, too, to show you I can be compassionate. Yeah. I'm always going to start off in Martin. But then when you get me going, you're going to find Malcolm in there somewhere. Yeah, I am Malcolm X. Yeah. But I was Mandela the moment I started reading his story back in the late 60s. Now, he'd been in prison eight to 10 years already. And I followed it. And I said to myself, one day I'm going to get a chance to interview this man. Mm-hmm. And those are the landmark interviews of of things that you know men and with billy jean king mm. uh before and after bobby ricks uh she's a female athlete but i'm talking about okay all right uh, let me see let me see shirley chisholm barbara jordan these are giants yeah these are giants we're not talking about some we're not talking about some athlete well let's talk about people who changed well, the let world. me ask you this since it's not you can't tell me which is the best interview i'll say what was it that you tried to bring to each interview to make it magical? Me. I tried to bring a piece of me. I'm telling you the truth. Um, I tried to bring me, when I say me, I tried to bring 
a different perspective of what this person was normally used to doing or answering. Got it. Yeah. Uh, I wanted them to say, this young person knows his craft. And I'm bringing me with the entire audience behind me. And I always gave the audience the credit by saying, what would the average person want to ask a Shirley Chisholm? A Barbara Jordan, a, um, you know, a Geraldine Ferraro or any of these people who what would you want to ask them? So I'd go around sometimes before I was going to do a big interview or something. Governor, president. OK, what would you want to ask the president if you had a chance to ask him? Hmm. I'd say, OK, now it may not come out exactly like you want to say it, but I'm going to frame this. So I'm going to ask basically the same question. I remember when Bill Clinton was governor of uh, Arkansas and Arkansas won the national championship. Perfect time. Yeah, They're yeah. up in the booth with him and he's, you know, he's the governor and I'm going to say, okay, it's perfect time to talk to him. I said, let's find out what this guy's like. So now I'm starting to interview politicians. Remember 38 years of this 50 years was spent in sports. Right. So you really ever get a chance to deal with the white house and all that kind of stuff. You can go to the parades and you can go in the white house. That wasn't important. But world issues were always important. So I wanted to interview Khrushchev. I wanted to interview, you know, um, um, let me see, Kasigian, all the guys that came after because there's a line of these guys dropping dead left and right. The Russians kill their leaders when they're tired. When they're tired <laughs> right. of Putin, he'll right. be gone too. Yeah. But anyway, I'm just saying by studying the history, particularly of from uh, I'd say the 15th century, maybe even back further from the empires. I started studying empire, Roman empire, Russian empire, Chinese empire, uh, the, uh, the Japanese empire. And you start to see how life evolves and how history is made. I became fascinated. So yeah. I just want to keep reading. I yeah. said, okay, I want to find out how these guys, how did Hannibal go all the way across? And then he was so tough. He said, well, we conquered everything, right? He said, yeah, let's go back. They go all the way back. Who, no no leader in the history of this world has ever done that. Yeah. It, all this stuff. No man has conquered from there all the way over and then all the way back. Said, There's my hero. And I started <laughs> reading some of the words and stuff he said. I said, oh, my gosh. Yeah. I said, these are giants. And that's what I, I wanted to bring that part of me into it. That's why I said. I have very little or no contact now with President Obama, but if he ever wants to really do an interview, yeah, just, do I, I do it right in the studio. I say, yeah. Mr. President, <laughs> come sit down, right? Because I'm going to I'm going to question you, and you're going to know when you got up from this seat where your shortcomings were, where you didn't measure up within yourself, where you could have been even a stronger black man than you were. But it was but you'll probably say it wasn't time. I would never, ever insult him. Yeah. I have too much respect for him. I've never insulted an interview subject, even even when I edit an interview, a nut like David Duke. And I said, tell the camera off. This, this man's not ready. He's just not ready. So we'll, we'll, do, we'll, we'll deal with whatever we have to deal with. Right. But I'm not quitting the interview. So I kept asking him questions, asking questions. I said, you don't frighten me. The difference is I'm pretty sure my IQ is higher than yours. I said, and I'm a pretty smart guy and I'm pretty, I'm fairly well read. Yeah. So you're going to have to go deep to deal with me. Yeah. He wasn't ready. Well, speaking, this is a great segue. Speaking of Obama, my next question actually was, I know that you, back in the days, you actually played basketball with Obama. Yeah, at Harvard. Talk, talk a little bit about that experience and why just through those interactions, you knew he would be great. Well, 
I I think I, I like this leadership on the court. He was playing yeah. with a bunch of guys from Harvard, and he was fair fair skinned guy. But he could jump his butt off. I mean, <laughs> all left handed. Some people think that's his political thinking, but it's not. <laughs> but we went over there with a ragtag squad of young guys. We played in the old medical building, and then we went to another place we played too. And I would see him, and he was just smart. And he he would keep he would keep you know in a pickup game guys start arguing so we I wouldn't allow my guys to argue I'd say look we're coming here to play these guys yeah. we're not coming here to argue with them yeah. we're not going to get kicked out of here we've been invited to come play so I was the first one that was invited because I'm a radio personality I'm on right. the air right. at um, where was I at that time I think I was doing one of the Boston stations I was doing talk and uh, so we go over there and and I'm watching he's jumping and you know putting his hand over the ground. I said, this, this, this young guy can go. I said, so let's see. Well, you see. knew him as Barry at the yeah, time. But no, Barry. everybody called him Barry. I didn't know him at all. I said, who's this Barry guy? Barry. I said, okay, no problem. Barry got to know Jimmy Myers, right. which is just as important. Yes. Because nobody knew who Barry was at that time. But everybody knew who Jimmy everybody Myers was. Everybody knew who Jimmy Myers was. Right, so correct. I'm out there giving orders, playing point guard, doing what I'm supposed to do. They, they come out, psh, go by him left, psh, go by him right, psh, Go by him right. Go by him left. And I'm saying, they're not going to be able to play me. Yeah. You're not going to be able to play me. So now my job is just to create for everybody. So it didn't take long before we were uninvited to go back over to Harvard. Because they couldn't beat us. They weren't going to beat us. you kept beating them. We kept beating them. We just pounded on them. We just said, wow. look. And there's no elbows, no fighting, nothing. And these are college players. These are guys who played at Yale, Harvard. I said, I said, I don't care where they came from. Yeah. This is just basketball. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I love about the scene in Glory in the movie Glory, Glory Road. And um and and, and it's really it, it it's really Hollywood just messing up everything because Derek Luke may be a fairly decent basketball player. Bobby Joe Hill was so light he looked white. And mm. you picked a dark skinned actor to play him. There ain't one light skinned guy you could have found that could have played Bobby Joe Hill, who was left handed and could play like Bobby Joe Hill. The whole country of, of high yellow black guys, you couldn't <laughs> find one because now the whole thing in the NBA yeah, is so the high, high yellow, yellow guys, guys are taking, taking over. over right? And yeah. I'm saying to myself, you couldn't have found <laughs> one high yellow guy to play Bobby Joe Hill. And I know, I know them all. I've interviewed all of them yeah. on my shows over yeah. years and so forth. Yeah. But I just told myself, you know, this is fun going over here and playing against these guys. I'm talking to doctors and lawyers. Yeah. And it, I, I, the guy I'll give credit to is Dr. Dave Lammers. I saw him a couple of weeks ago. He still looks good. He said, you still playing ball? No. I long <laughs> since retired. But Dave invited us over there. And after a while, they couldn't beat us. I just said, they're not beating us. So you, 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 saw, some, you saw some leadership, some leadership ability in him at that time. No question. Yeah. And the thing was, I liked how... He was able to relate to the guys that I brought from the street, yeah, and the white guys from yeah. the, the 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 top of the uh, of the um, yeah. Well, he's you know the social chain. He's always known how to switch cultural channels, but he you could know. play. Yeah, oh, and he could play. and he could yeah. play too. Yeah, the thing was that he was tough. Get knocked down, wouldn't say anything. Didn't mm. call fouls. I liked him. I said, well, I like him because I don't like calling fouls. I said yeah. to myself, if we're in a playground game, my job is to get my shot off. If it right. doesn't go in, it's my fault. Right. Now, if you get grabbed and you, know, you can't even get the ball up, then they call. I played in Philadelphia and even in certain parts of New York, played by the honor system. If I'm playing you, Sekou, and I foul you, I know I fouled you. Right. My job is to give you the hold my whole time. Here, here's the ball. Let's start again. But... You know, and that's that's kind of the way he played. But remember, yeah. you're talking about a black man who father from the African continent, white mother, 
raised in Hawaii. Right. Come on, please. Right. I'm just trying to think this brother, and I know nothing about him. I right. try to say, do you imagine the culture, the culture shock alone of coming from Milwaukee? I mean, from Hawaii. Hawaii. Yes, Hawaii to Chicago to Boston. All right, my next question for you is, is something that I've, you know, I've never asked you, but it was a moment uh, in your life that was most public. Well, I guess you're going to ask me now, and also most pivotal. Mm-hmm. Why did you quit on, quit on the air? I knew I knew that was coming. Why did you quit on the air, and do you ever regret it? No. First question is no. Now the history behind it is such: I worked at Channel Four. I worked for Westinghouse Broadcasting Radio four years, TV five years, and I worked my way up from a lowly producer to being able to be the top producer in radio, top talk show talent in radio, moved over to television and became the top weekend anchor in the city of Boston. Yeah. And I did this during a time of busing and all of its drama. And all the things that were going on in what was still considered by many the most segregated city in America. I had not more or less won over an audience. I compelled the audience to watch me. Yeah. They couldn't turn away because I was, I'm the best sportscaster on TV. This man that I did not get along with who was the sports director was Len Berman. And the, uh, the Len Berman? The Len Berman. And um, Len stepped over a line one night. He'll deny it to the day he dies, but I know what he said and I know what he did. And the only thing that saved Len Berman was the fact that Richard Chase, my roommate, 6'6", cameraman, 280, and Charlie Austin grabbed me. Because that night, and this is because I had enough of these battles, and you don't call me stupid, you don't call me something because we went 15 seconds over on a piece or something, and I just said, enough of this little boy. So when he said, uh, the next day we go into management's office. And I said, told him what he said. He comes storming through the door. I didn't call you that. I said, excuse me. You not only call me that. You've been trying to treat me like that since the day I got here. And let me tell you something. You want to play this little racial game? We'll play it. But I will tell you this right now. And the news director, Bill Aber, you know this, Bill Aber, because you were in that office. He sat right there and didn't say what I said. If you ever speak to me out of respect again, I will kill you. <laughs> and I don't like to curse. Right. Give me audience. But right. that's the way it was. Yeah. I said, you will not treat me like a nigger. I'm the one person you're not going to treat like that. I never treat anybody like that. Whatever. But I knew right then this is the pivotal moment of your life. Mm -hmm. Either you're going to be the good Negro and accept this and walk away. So he goes out the office and Bill Aber says, you know, you, you know, you just, you can't threaten people. I said, no, 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 no. I didn't threaten him. I promised right. to kill him. Right. There's right. a There's big a difference, difference yes. between a threat and a promise. I said, because Bill, if you ever talk to me like that, I'm going to tear your head off too. I said, now you don't want me going through this newsroom and tearing up everything in here and being on the front page of the globe. About uh, so the next year, he Len Berman did everything he could to make my life miserable. Call in late on a sick day, so I'd have to be called off my off day or off an assignment to come sit at the anchor desk. Wow. 
on a Sunday night, he'd bring his whole family in. So they'd stand behind the camera, something we don't even allow. They don't want anybody to do. There's supposed to be nobody in the, in, in, in the, in the, uh, news, in the uh, news studio except working personnel. Oh, he wants to show them this. And He's the boss, right? Mm-hmm. And nobody realized that his little Jewish connection is what got him the job in the first place. Right. Because uh, Jeff Schiffman was his program director, I believe, up at Syracuse, and that's where they met. So he's from big Syracuse, and I'm from Boston University. I will credit Len Berman, one of the finest producers of packages that I've seen. The man has production skills beyond. Nobody ever taught me these things, so I wasn't going to have them. But sheer sports, sheer knowledge of sports, going head to head. Let me put it like this, Len. You are totally unarmed. (laughs) Totally. You were nowhere near my talent. And I'm sure you could see it. And I'm sure you probably didn't like it. Now, your career has gone on. You've made millions. More power to you. You're still not better than me. You weren't better than me then, and you will never, ever be better than me. I took the tougher road, and I'm still here 50 years later. So what? So, But, but, but leading so up to leaders, all of this, yeah. he leaves. Oh, he <clears> left. Okay. Yep. And I got passed over for the five-day-a-week job. Hmm. Had to be one of the most difficult days of my life. My Jewish godmother, rest her soul, Myrna Gorin, Myrna called me to say, Berman just announced he quit on the air. You better hurry up and get to the station. And I just sat there. I was with a friend of mine who was dying, and I was his caretaker, LaRue. Never forget it. And I said, Myrna, there's no need for me to go to the station. He said, they're trying to find you. I'm sure they're trying to find you. They weren't, there weren't cell phones then. Uh-huh. And there weren't, and, and, there, and I didn't have, I had an answering service. Make a long, to, to, to get to it. I just basically said, it's not my job. She said, what are you talking about? It has to be your job. You worked your ass off for this. I said, they'll never give it to me. I said, because of what I said to Berman in that office that day. Mm-hmm. And he took it up to Cy Yanoff. Jewish person. Yeah. Jewish person. Jewish network. And believe me, before any Jewish person wants to come talk to me, you better know what you're talking about. <laughs> because I live this. And they have a network that when they want to, if they want to do it, just like white people, any any other white person or black people, we're not as good with our network. And I told us not my job. I went home that night and I said, it's not your job. It's not your job. But you wanted that job. Wanted it. Wanted more than anything. Yeah. To, To synopsize this. I knew that day I wasn't going to get the job because of my argument in, in the um, general manager's office. I mean, the news director's office. I went upstairs, came back down. They had to find a way to get rid of this little militant Negro. And Lord knows he called this guy a Jew boy. Forget what he called him. <laughs> he said, but that's the way it was. And the hardest part for me was having to go into work anymore mm-hmm. because they hired a guy named Roger Twybell out of Florida. And I was asked by Bill Abram, listen, we'd like you to show Roger around town, introduce him around. Mm. Now, you want to talk about insult to injury. Yeah. Now, I'd gone through this, and I'm telling you, I, I lost it. Believe me, I, I, was, I, was, I, was, I honestly was thinking I was losing my mind. <laughs> I said, you worked this hard for something. You've earned it. One, I'm being underpaid. Mm-hmm. Because my numbers alone were as good as Berman's during the week. And at certain times, my numbers were better than his. 
And then they bring this guy in cold. Nothing personal, Roger. You know, Roger, he was only there for a short amount of time. So about a week after, a couple of weeks after he came, the word starts filtering around town. So Neil Singlis, Neil Singlis, he was a writer for the Boston Globe, came, he wanted to interview me. And I gave him an interview. It's out there. You can find it if you want to find it. And I just said, I don't care what they do to me. He says, Neil Singlis was even such nice enough because at that time, no writers, very few writers in this town were going to try to talk to me because I was just going to blow them away. But Neil came in with the soft lamb touch. He was smarter. But even after the interview, he said, Jimmy, are you sure this is what you want to say? He called me and said, are you sure this is what you want to say? I said, yes. Print it word for word. And that's what he put in the, uh, in the article. Well, now management is, oh my goodness, management is insulted. We gave this little Negro a chance. How dare he throw it back in our faces? Mm -hmm. He should be grateful he was here all these years. Forget the fact that he had overachieved everything that you thought he was going to achieve. And I'm going to turn this back very quickly for you for one second. When I first started with the $2 an hour, nobody got this except the fact after Clark and I mended our, our initial meeting. Clark had to tell me one day, now I've been there like six months now and I'm doing well. I walked in and quit that day. Mm. <clears throat> I don't need your charity and I don't want your job. Yeah. And I quietly didn't no choking, no nothing. Right, right. Laid it on the table and walked out. Clark followed me out of the building, walked up the street with me and said, Jimmy, I'm telling you, you have something special. Don't let this happen. Yes, it's true. We hired you because you were black. He said, because we didn't keep you because you were black. Right. We kept you because you're good. good. Right. He said, you're Makes sense. really that good. But all of that, now let's flip back to the resignation. All of that, all of what I've told you for this last hour or so of all the trials and, and the tribulation and all the crap that you have to deal with to be passed over for the one job that you wanted. Because at that time, there were no five-day-week black anchors in Boston. I think Terry Carter, who used to be on McLeod, the uh, the TV series McLeod, he had come through Boston for a while. He might have been on, but there were no sports guys. They were black. They were doing it five days a week. And uh, next next couple of months were like agony. And I told him I told him when my contract was up, I was not going to stay. The biggest problem for them was Maurice Lewis was also our, our anchor, our weekend anchor. So we were. We were the we were the sole team on the weekend. Maurice's contract ran out in in July, and mine ran out in August. How are they going to get rid of their two principal anchors within a week's time of each other? Right. You want the fact of the story? This is it. So they came to me, and we had a black news director. Bill Aber had gone on. Black news director Don Ross called me into his office, and he gave me the brother spiel. And I said, <laughs> "Look, I don't want to hear it. I'm leaving August 31st." The man broke down and cried mm. right in front of me. Black man mm. said, Jimmy, if you quit, I'm going to lose my job. He says, can't you do something? Can't you can't you soften your heart for just a moment? I said, no, Don, I'm not interested. I'm done with these people. I can go on and do other things in my life. I can go to law school. I can go back to law school. I, I'm having to start. I can go to law school. So. Seeing this man cry, it, it really touched me. Mm. And I didn't know Don Ross that well because he would be later fired after, after I left. But six, they said, 
okay, this is what we want to do. Let us take six months, just six months so we can separate the fire, the firing of Maurice and you. So it doesn't look like there's some kind of conspiracy going on here. Uh Here was the time I said, no, no, not interested. And then as I walked out of the building, he walked out in the parking lot when we were talking and so forth. They called my attorney, Henry Owens, and Henry said, Jimmy, think about this. He said, this is just going to cause a lot of unhappiness. Now, I said, Henry, what about my unhappiness? Mm-hmm. I'm the talent. I'm the guy that's got to go out there with a smiling face every night, deliver sports to these people, show these people that 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 I know better than just about anybody they're listening to what's going on. And then I went home that night and I thought about it. I thought about it. I couldn't even sleep that night. I said, here, first you go crazy because they didn't give you a job. Now you got you got to put up with six more months of this. I said, okay. I said, Don, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll save your job. But come December 31st, I'm done. I don't care what you say. Yeah. Now the deal was in paper. It's on it's in writing. Westinghouse Broadcast, we will do everything we can to seek another job for you in another market. Right. And then this line at the bottom. But at the end of December 31st, we will terminate you. I said, oh, what do you mean terminate? I've already quit. Right. So what the hell are you talking about terminate? Right. Take that out of there. Yeah. So we haggled, haggled, haggled. Henry said, they're willing to give you a little bit more money. I said, I don't care about money. It's not about that, Henry. I said, these people are trying to control my life. So I said, okay, look, it's only six months. Let's get this over with. This all leads up to where we're going. So for the next six months, I worked with Roger, did whatever he asked me to do, did my did my due diligence and told myself if I ever become a sports director, I will never, ever treat the weekend guy like I was treated. I just and I never have in any job I've been in. Somebody's my subordinate or whatever. I'm going to treat him with or her with dignity and respect. So we come near the end. And I went to Las Vegas to cover the Marvin Hagler, uh, Vito Anafermo middleweight championship fight. And just before I left, this is December, the, the weekend of December, November 28th, 29th, 30th, and the 1st of December. So it's a Friday night and, and I get a call just before I get, just before I leave the office and it's, it's this, I don't know this guy. It's, hey, I'm so-and-so-and-so from Pittsburgh. I said, KDKA? Our station in Pittsburgh? He says, yeah. He says, I'm in the human resources department. He says, how many jobs have you applied for? I said, oh, San Diego, Pittsburgh. A mm-hmm. um, couple other jobs. He says, let me tell you what happened. You're being blacklisted. I said, what are you talking about? He says, if you go on your computer there's certain language that's there that tell that that this station that you worked for for all these years is blacklisting you. I said, what? He said, yeah, this is how they do it. Never forget that call as long as I leave. He says, I looked at your numbers. You have the highest numbers for weekends for a sportscaster in the history of that station. The station opened in 1948, the mm. year I was born. Mm. June 48, they opened. November 48, I, I, I was that born. You opened. <laughs> I opened, right? (laughs) Right. So he told me, they're doing you a dirty brother and there's nothing I can do except warn you to be careful. Mm. All that flight to Vegas, all that flight back home, Marvin lost the fight on um, 
on a real funky decision. And I saw Marvin, I interviewed him in his, in his uh, room and I saw him crying and I saw Don, Don King Ross crying, right? Don Ross, Don Ross crying, him crying. And I knew what it meant to Mel to Marvin, you know, a guy from Jersey, you know, fought his way from the streets all the way up to the top and he gets jobbed. And I said to myself, you're going to allow them to do this to you. So you looking at Marvin's situation and no, saying, No, no, gonna- no, I'm looking at my situation okay. and Don Ross's situation and Marvin's situation. Yeah. Black men that worked their asses off to get to this point, and yet there was nothing they could do about it. I still had a voice to be able to say what I wanted to say. I said, Now, you can wait to December 31st, the next 29 days or whatever, or you can tell them you're done now. Mm-hmm. So I went to work on Saturday and I was going to quit on Saturday night. Ran out of time because I had too much too much sports to do. Sunday, 6 o'clock, ran out of time. So then I wrote up my resignation thing. And I called Don Ross. I didn't do anything that management didn't know. Yeah. I gave him a copy. This is what I'm going to read on the air. So he called Cy Ganoff, the general manager, who hired me to my, who was the general manager in radio, general manager in TV, gave my job, gave my shot, didn't want me to be the five-day-a-week guy. Wasn't ready for that. And he said, let him read it. I said, fine. So I went on the air. I said, um, finish the sportscast. I said, now there are rumors to the uh, fact to the effect that I am leaving Channel Four. Those are no longer rumors. I am telling you here and now, I am leaving Channel Four. I said, I will not give you the reasons for my resignation at this time, seeing that if I ever plan to work in this business again, I think I need to hold these things in right now. But all I will ask you to do is keep an eye on what's going on here at WBZ, and you'll see why I'm leaving. Boom. Mm-hmm. So with that, I said, and that's what it is in sports. Took my mic. No, no you go from a tight shot mm-hmm. of me to Maurice Lewis is there. He doesn't know what to say. I think it was Maurice was still there. It was Jake Scott. No, Jake Scott. I mean, um, Jim Scott. Jim Scott, another black anchor. So Jim doesn't know what to do. He's sitting there. So he goes to sign off. So I take my mic off and I flip it across the desk and I go to walk out. Mm-hmm. They went to a wide shot and you see me walking off. Right. So, so Jimmy Myers stormed off. Da, 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 da. How dare a black man tell white America that he's had enough of their shit? How dare you? You're supposed to. I don't care if we give you 10,000 lashes. You're supposed to ask for 10,001. <laughs> Not this time. <laughs> so consequently, it reverberated across the country. Yeah. And it took me two years to get back on the air. After that. After that. Yeah. All right. All right, we're going to jump into our last segment. Okay. Yes or BS. Okay. I'm going to say a statement. If you agree with it, say yes. Mm-hmm. If you don't agree with it, say BS. Go for it. And number one, racism can be reversed. BS, mm. not in this lifetime. Unfortunately, mm. I think. When you say this lifetime, I mean your lifetime? My lifetime, the next lifetime, the next lifetime. It mm. is in so ingrained in the American society. I just don't think that there will ever truly be a, a race, um, a raceless society. A society where someone will not look at the color of someone else's skin and wish to judge them. Number two. ESPN is the most influential sports channel in history. I'd say yes. I'd say overall, yes. It wasn't the first. The networks came long before ESPN, CBS, ABC, NBC. But ESPN took sports and treated it like news when I first got there. 
That's what built ESPN to where it is today. Now it's the words ESPN, Entertainment Sports Programming Network. They became more flash than dash. That's the problem now. Got more it. flash than substance now. Number three, Jimmy Myers will once again be on network television. I don't know. Uh, I would say, I would say, I would say yes, if they are, if the people that control network TV are smart enough to seek my advice and my knowledge, <laughs> I would say BS because more than likely they're not. So that's, 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 <laughs> that's a twofold dead. question. I mean, I, I, it's not, it's not my network. Yeah. Say cool. I don't own it. So I'm not going to be able to walk through their doors, the doors of CBS, NBC, ABC, wherever, ESPN, and demand they put me on the air. What I'll do is I'll stay with the internet. That way I can say whatever I want to say. Yeah. I can say it in the language I wish to say it. Yeah. And they have no other choice except that eh, we don't have to listen to it. That's it. Fine. Or we shall listen to it and learn, which I hope <laughs> you would. <laughs> Number four, Boston is more racially divided than New York. No. Uh, I'd say this BS. The only the only difference is this: people have learned to coexist better in New York because of the melting pot that New York is. Boston has always been a separated city. New York is a city that does believe in inclusion, but it has probably more racial problems here in New York than than anywhere. Why? Because one of the largest cities in the world. Two, it's because there are a lot of black people that are out there suffering in New York City. Yeah. And they know what I'm talking about. And racism is racism. No matter whether you're here, California, Louisiana, Wyoming, you're going to find <laughs> that, that that very little of this is going to change. So I would say I'd say that's BS. And number five. Football player Ray Lewis was a great athlete and a great man. Great athlete, yes. Became a great man, yes. Made major mistakes in his career. So I would say yes slash BS. Part of it's BS. But the one beauty of Ray Lewis is that he was able to resurrect his image and his career after that killing in Atlanta. Right. I mean, after that killing at the Super Bowl, right. when where he was involved, yeah. uh, regardless of what anybody else wants to say, I've talked to Ray, and you know, he's 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 an icon. He's become an iconic yeah. figure. And the one thing I like about Ray, he took that incident to help a lot of other brothers. Now, let me let, let me jump in something here. There's a story that broke last night. So to tell you how, how we stay on top of things. I don't know if you remember Ray Carruth. He was a wide receiver for the Carolina Panthers. He just spent. 17 years in jail mm. for a conspiracy to murder his girlfriend who was pregnant. Mm. The story was, was huge. I covered that story. Ray Carruth is supposed to be getting out on parole October 22nd. He has petitioned the girl's mother to take custody of the son that he tried to kill in the womb. Mm. He set up a hit on mm. his, his girlfriend while she was carrying his child, all went bad. Guys had hit her, rolled over. Ray was convicted. Ray's admitted. He has flat out admitted he was in on this attempted murder. And now do you think he deserves to have that child taken away from its grandparents who have not known him, basically? Maybe they've taken the child to prison a couple of times. I don't know. 
But by law, I would probably say if I were the judge, I'd have a very difficult time yeah, giving him that child that yeah. he tried to kill. Yeah. So I mean, I can, there's there's two sides, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there's one side what you're saying. The mm -hmm. other side is, you know, he paid for his crimes. Okay. Seventeen years is a long time. But murder is the ultimate crime. I you agree. You read your Bible and the, the, the and and Ray Carew's biggest biggest judgment is standing before him when he closes his eyes for the last time and he's yeah. got to stand before the master. Yeah. That's when it's going to count. What he did down here. Okay, you paid your time down there. This is eternal. You may not pay your time up here as long as God feels in your heart as to what you did and how it worked and so forth. Uh, number six, neither Fox nor CNN tell the truth. I'd say yes. I think they more. I think they manufacture news much more mm. than they uh, than they report the news. They, yeah. they 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 have become the the platform for crazy people. For for a lot of, a lot no 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 for a lot of divergent uh, opinions like Laura Ingram, uh, Ann Coulter, all these crazy people. Why they wind up on Fox? Yeah. And you rarely ever hear Fox take any type of positive slant when it comes to stories that involve people of color. All these shootings, all these all of these how 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 cruel and and brutal they were to President Obama when he was in office. Neither one of those networks. I, I don't watch them. I don't have any respect for them. So I would say yes. Number seven. Joe Biden should run for president. Ah, uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. 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 Because I told Joe Biden he should have ran for president right after President Obama, but he just lost right. his son. Yeah. And I understood what it what it did to him. He's Joe's a good guy. Joe Joe is a Joe Joe's a very decent man. Met him. Talk to him. Uh, it really bothered me that he didn't run. I yeah. really wanted him to run because yeah. I think he could have carried on the um, the legacy, the momentum of yeah. President Obama instead of the legacy constantly being challenged and trying to be destroyed by by this current president. Forty five. Whatever. Number eight. Never trust a big button to smile. BS. <laughs> There are some big butts and there are some smiles that I'm going to trust. Believe me. Where do you come up with this stuff? And remember, I helped to raise this young man. So when he's going down this road, he's more or less peering off and venturing off into the wilderness of, of his own making. I know, you, I know you love that song. I do. Bell Biv DeVoe. All I right. do. Number nine. 19-year-olds should be allowed to buy guns. No. Not without extreme background checks. Um, extreme vetting? Extreme vetting, yes. <laughs> Agreed. Uh, no. Uh, no. No. I, I'm just thinking that it's, very, it's a very conflicting question. The reason being is that I'm sending 18-year-olds off to war, and they're learning how to handle weapons anyway. Yeah. So how am I going to tell a 19-year-old that, okay, you can risk your life for your country, but you're not allowed to carry guns. What I would say is that with this recent situation down in Parkland, Florida, we're going to have to arm security guards within the school. Yes. That's, you're going to have to do that. Yes. Um, America, I know you don't want to hear this, but our country is in massive trouble. We have to stop these things. And if that's the only way, so be it. Now, in some schools in Israel, teachers are armed. They're trained and they're armed because so many... Um, so many Israel 
so many of Israel's citizens have to, you, you, I believe there's a military commitment. You have to be in the military for a couple of years. So they are prepared. But we have to protect our children. And I would say on the average, the average 19-year-old, like you said, unless he's vetted or or, 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 or you screen him up and down, the answer would be no. Be no. All right. My last question. Mm-hmm. People of color today hold more power and influence in entertainment and media than 30 years ago. Yes and bullshit. The reason being is <laughs> if they were really as powerful as they thought they were, they would be looking for voices of change, of people that could really make impact in the business instead of producing the same refried programmings that programs that we see where blacks are thugs or maids or butlers or whatever. Why can't you have an intelligent, outspoken black person who challenges white people and black people, holds them up to a level where they have to be accountable and answerable for the crazy stuff that they do. Of course, now the illusion of power, like you said, see, I told you all power is illusional. Yes, for the black, absolutely. for the young black people who in this business and they have a chance, they truly have a chance to make change. I don't see it. They're not making change. Okay. So what are they doing there? Making money. That's if that is your only criterion in life, then you you don't understand life at all. Mm-hmm. Because as my Bible tells me, and I read it every day, my Bible tells me you cannot serve God and Mammon. Simple as that. So they're serving money. Yeah. When all they have to do is tell the truth, lay the truth out there for white people and black people to see it. Then maybe your questions we can go back. See, my brain thinks on a all speeds. I can go back to that racism question. Yeah. Will it ever end? Can it be reversed? It can it be reversed? No. I don't believe it's going to be reversed, but it can be dealt with. It can be dealt with openly and honestly because there's always going to be clan people. There's always going to be Aryan Brotherhood. These people fester in a world of their own. They're yeah. not going to change. Therefore, we must be vigilant to hold them accountable for everything they say and do. All right. James D. Myers. This has been um, epic. This has been my longest interview. So we're going to break it up into two parts. That's fine. Um, I really want to thank you for traveling here from Boston, um, making the time to share just, I mean, we've we've been, we've been going for two hours and four minutes. Um, and this is not even scratching the surface. This is scratching the surface of the surface. Well, maybe you'll invite <laughs> me back and we'll, we'll, de- we'll delve into more chapters. Um, I'm going to end um, on a, a quote from you, actually. Um, you, it, it's, a cu- it's a clip from one of your interviews, and you actually asked a question. But, but I really feel like the interview's answer typifies who you really are. You would not be broken. You would just determine no matter what happened to you, you would not be broken. I can't, Where does that type of strength come from? I can't claim fame for that. I just can't do it. I wish I could. I got enough ego. I got enough ego to want to, to, want to do that. I can't. 
I don't know where it comes from. There is something within us that could overcome anything. He can overcome anything. Mm-hmm. And he mm-hmm. has Car. overcome everything. Wow. Just like the poem that I read in the beginning. Invictus. His head is, uh, is bludgeoned, but not, not bowed. My head is bloodied, but unbowed. But unbowed. And I think with that, I'm going to sign off. As I always say, the truth will set you free if you let it.